Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6. Uh, our text this morning is actually Matthew 6, 24 through 34. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray for God's help to understand what he says to us about the anxiety that so easily fills our hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us the words of eternal life. And so grant us this day the freedom to choose you over the gods of our own making. Let us know you from within. And may your life-giving love flow out of us to others. Nourish us now with your word, we ask, through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Matthew 6, 24 through 34. No one can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, a little, you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome. Good to see y'all. There you go, right over there. All right, do, do you like eating outside? I do. I, I like eating outside. The, the fresh air, the warm sun, it's all so nice. Even the food seems to taste a little bit better when you're eating outside. But what I really like about eating outside is the birds. Not, not uh, seagulls, just to be clear. Those guys are the worst. One time, a seagull took half of a donut right out of Jenny's hand. Just took it right out of her hand. I, I do not like them, but I do like watching all those little birds that like to hang out near restaurant patios. I like 
how brave they are. And, and they come in close to people to get those little bits of bread that fall on the ground. They dart and dive and hop and peck. Just enjoying the feast that your heavenly Father prepared for them. It, it always reminds me about that passage that, that we just read and, and how Jesus tells us not to worry about all those important things that we need, like food. Because if God takes care of the birds that he made, then you and I can totally trust him to take care of us too. After all, Jesus says, you are way more valuable to him than those birds. He, he cares for them, but he cares more for you by far. Like a good father, though, he, he might not give you everything that you want, right? Do your parents give you everything that you want? No. But you can trust God to give you everything that you need. But if we can trust God, if we can trust God to provide for the basic things like food and clothes, then we can also trust him when he tells us there's something even more important that we need. And he does just that in the passage that we read. Jesus tells us that life in God's kingdom is way more important than food or clothes. Living under God's rule, the way that God says life works best, that is the first thing that needs to be on our minds. We need to devote some serious effort to live in the way that God tells us is best. But here's the bad news. All of us fail to do that in all sorts of ways. Instead of trusting God and obeying him, we worry. We worry about those same basic things, wondering if God really cares about us. And, and because we doubt that he does, we spend an awful lot of time and energy chasing the very things that God promised to give to us. But you understand, that's exactly why Jesus came. He, he is the king, but he came to rescue us from our failure to seek God's kingdom. Instead of punishing us as traitors who rejected him, Jesus died himself so that we can enjoy real life under God's care and learn how to live under his rule. And now Jesus invites you, hey, trust me totally. Don't, don't just trust because you're looking at the birds and seeing how God's feeding, but but trust him as you look at Jesus who died on the cross for you and see how much he loves us. He, he loves us so much that he set us free from sin and worry so that we can seek God's kingdom first in our lives. And because our king is happy to not give us not only God's kingdom, but also himself, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seats. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 6, if you haven't already. Uh, here we're in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, have you ever noticed the connection between the Sermon on the Mount and God's giving of the law at Mount Sinai back in Exodus? In both, God is close to his people in both, he's communicating with them. He's telling them how life in his kingdom is supposed to be. In both, 
His people are witnessing his presence. But there are differences, of course. Jesus is showing us that the law runs deeper than anybody had yet understood. At Sinai, the holiness of God actually keeps people at a distance. Only Moses is allowed to come near. But in Jesus, God is drawing near to his people. His powerful holiness is actually able to make people clean so that they can be near him. At Sinai, God is dealing with Israel as a whole. But in Jesus, you have to notice the personal intimacy of this moment. Uh, he insists that the one we pray to is our Father. And so on the one hand, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has been called a republication, a, a restating of God's law. And as such, just like at Sinai, God's people are confronted with the reality that none of us actually live this way. We tremble, knowing that we have broken God's law and broken God's heart such that we actually deserve his wrath. But if we think that God is interested in crushing us beneath the weight of our failure to obey him, then we are deeply misunderstanding him. Because in Jesus' words, he is giving us a glimpse into life in God's kingdom. He is showing us what he is saving us from and what he is saving us to. So that through him, we can begin living the eternal kind of life today. We're going to zoom in today to look at a particular way the eternal kind of life that Jesus gives changes an area of particular concern for you and me. As another says, here the living God is speaking about real daily struggles, and he is speaking to you. The, the one who has risen from the dead, who is the same today as he was when he was sitting on this hillside, is speaking to you. And so what does Jesus know that we struggle with? Well, lots of things, of course, which is why the Sermon on the Mount covers so many topics. But in these particular verses that we read, he's addressing our fears about anything related to money. He's speaking into the anxiety that we feel when bills are due but cash is thin. He's questioning our nervousness when we have some savings but the whispers of recession rise. But by focusing on the basics of food and drink and clothes, he, he is talking about the anxiety that we feel over all the things that we need in this life, from eggs to education, pants to plumbing repairs. And Jesus is not beating around the bush. He presses right into things with a very clear command. Do not be anxious. Only, he does it in a really surprising way. He does not dismiss our concerns. 
he, he acknowledges their legitimacy. He, he tells us that the things that we're anxious about are, in fact, important. But he is also saying that there is something much more important that deserves, even demands, our attention. And he is going to free us to do just that. And so consider this question with me. What is important? What's important? Well, Jesus names what is important to us in verse 25. Look there. He talks about what we need for life, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear to cover our bodies. He, he is talking about those basic necessities for human beings, the, the food and drink that sustains us, our, our clothes that form that most basic protection from the elements. And by pointing to the most basic necessities, Jesus is including all those extra things that we worry about, car repairs, college for kids, care in our old age. I don't have to convince you. Uh, we are aware of how important these things are. But what we need to hear is how these things are important to us and also to God. Look at verse 32. Jesus names God not as some distant deity, but as our Father. And talking about what we eat and drink and wear, he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. By calling God our Father, he is not introducing a new idea to God's people. Rather, he is deepening and emphasizing an old one. He, he is highlighting God's care, God's compassion, God's strength, because he wants you to know that your heavenly Father is attentive to you, and he is accessible to you. Not only is he aware of your needs, but your needs are actually important to him. Do you believe that God cares about your bills and your breakfast, about your shirts and shoes and sandwiches? Or is your experience telling you something different? Are your worries about money so loud? Are they so rational that you can't hear the voice of your father saying to you, I, I know, I care. You and your needs are important to me. Don't be afraid. I mean, you and I know that we should know that our Father cares about us. But in case you haven't noticed, anxiety can be a little bit stubborn, right? Now, if Jesus was like us, then he would be annoyed at our failure to get it. But instead... Jesus sets out to quiet our fears by proving that our daily needs, our physical needs, are actually important to God, to our Father. Listen to this simple, beautiful imagery that Jesus uses as he points us toward God's care for his creation in order to convince us that he will care for us too. Look, look at verse 26. Your Father cares for the needs of birds. They are fed by your heavenly Father. They still need to search 
for their food, of course. They, uh, you know, worms don't catch themselves. Seeds don't just jump into their beaks. But birds don't tend gardens. They don't build barns. And so here, Jesus is not denying our responsibility to work for our needs, to provide for our needs. But he is pointing to the birds in order to free us from worry while we work. Because the creator of the birds cares for them and provides for them. And Jesus points out, aren't you more valuable to him than them? Is a starling worth more to God than Steve Moore? Is a robin or robin arms dearer to him? God cares for everything that he's made. We know that. But you, you are the only part of his creation that has been made in his image. And that means your father has a unique interest in caring for you. Unless we think that God's provision is minimalistic or utilitarian, look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus continues to say that if God clothes non-human creation in beauty, then he is certainly going to do the same and more for you. Look at the lilies of the field, Jesus says. Solomon's grandeur can't compare with them. And the way that God clothes fleeting creation, here today, burn for fuel tomorrow, that is pointing us to the way that God will lastingly care for us. As another says, Jesus is making a point about beauty. His kingdom is not merely drab and functional. Somehow, the kingdom he is announcing is a kingdom of beauty. The beautiful one is king, and his children are and will be reflections of his beauty. Je Jesus is showing us God's extravagance, his attention to detail in non-human creation because he wants us to know and to trust that God's infinite creative energies are directed toward us, too. When it comes to the needs for your body, for the coverings of both clothing and shelter, you can trust God to generously provide what we need. Uh, grant, granted, he may not give us what we want. Thinking that he will is the expectation error of the health and wealth preachers. But he is assuring you that although you may never, you may never be better dressed than a wildflower, the God who imagined irises is committed to clothing you. Jesus tells us to look at the birds and the lilies because he means to quiet our anxious fears about these basic necessities. He, he wants you to remember and to rest in your Father's care for you. He wants you to trust your Father for these things that are important to you and to him. But it's at this point that we need to notice that Jesus is doing more than calling us to trust in God for these basic things. He is also telling us that there is something 
far more important that does demand our attention. And so if we've talked about what's important, we need to ask now, what's more important? What's more important? We hear his answer in verse 33. Our physical needs are important to God, but, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The word he uses for seek here means to devote serious effort to realize or to have one's desire. And so Jesus is calling us to make God's kingdom our first, most serious pursuit. Before food or drink or clothing, he says to seek God's righteousness. God's righteousness here means more than just having a right standing before God. It doesn't mean less than that, but it means more than that. Seeking God's righteousness means that we desire to order our lives, to organize our lives according to the way that our king says life works best. In this, Jesus is calling us back to God's purpose for us. We were made we were made to glorify and enjoy him forever. Not merely to satisfy our needs. When we make our existence about food and clothing, the, the here and now of our needs, we are engaged in some deeply reductionistic thinking. As Jesus says in verse 25, life, real life, is much more than those things. Writing in the 4th century, John Chrysostom reminds us that we were not born for this end, that we should eat and drink and be clothed, but that we might please God. And so it's vital that we order our pursuits rightly, seeking to live under God's rule today while trusting that, as we do, he will provide what is needful for us. That's what Jesus says in verse 33. After calling us to seek God's kingdom, he says, if we will do that first, then all these other things will be added to us. Again, that is not to say that God promises everything that we want, but it does suggest that if there is something that God has not given to us, then we must believe that we don't actually need it in order to glorify and enjoy him today. To say it another way, if devoting ourselves to the needs of the body in this life only, if that is reductionist thinking, thinking too little of life, then devoting our first efforts to seeking God's rule advance in our lives, that is maximal thinking. Because this is the pursuit for which you were made, to know the Father and to live under his rule, under his loving care. Jesus is telling us that that is the good life. That is real life. But is that what you are seeking? After all, in verse 32, Jesus says the difference between those who know God as their heavenly Father and the Gentiles who don't know God at all, 
The difference is what each is seeking. The, the functional dis, what functionally distinguishes the two is what they are devoting all of their efforts to possessing. This is really closely connected with what Jesus is saying in verse 24 when he talks about the impossibility of serving two masters. Did, did you notice how he uses the same language of devotion? People will either be devoted to God's kingdom or to the pursuit of things in this life. People will either hold fast to the main thing or they will cling to important but still lesser things. You will either love God and seek his kingdom, or you will love wealth and trust what it can do for you. But you can't do both at once. In other words, Jesus is challenging us with a question about allegiance. Allegiance. It's as if he is asking, whose kingdom are you seeking? Do you trust the king who is also your father? Does he have your heart's allegiance? Will you trust him for your daily bread and basic needs while giving yourself to the things that he says are even more important to life? Or, or will you believe the voices, including your own, that say this life is all there is, you are vulnerable and you are on your own. And believing them over God will wealth, the, the world's best solution to every problem, will that have your allegiance? Will you make money your functional savior, your protector, your best hope for the good life? For most of us, it's time for a good confession. Here, we need to be honest with God and with ourselves about what's really going on inside of us. And this is where that word that Jesus used six times in this short passage helps us. Anxious. Because anxiety about the needful things of this life, anxiety is an indicator emotion for us. It is a flashing light alerting us to the presence of the, alerting us to the reality that our allegiances are at best mixed. For a follower of Jesus, having an anxious, worried heart is a sign that we are trying to have it both ways. We, with one foot in the kingdom of the world and the other in the kingdom of heaven. Anxiety is telling us that we are trying to serve God, the king, and money, the usurper king, which is something that we can't do. If, if like me, in this moment, if like me, you are alert to anxiety in your heart and mind, and if you are confessing with me, that you're wavering between allegiance, between your heavenly Father and allegiance to money as the solution to your problems. What are we supposed to do? If we keep seeking and serving wealth, we're only going to keep being anxious. 
We won't find the eternal kind of life that way because as Jesus says in verse 27, being anxious can't prolong your life at all. It doesn't do anything. We must listen to Jesus here and realize, as, as another said, that in everything we do, we are making spiritual decisions. We live in dependence on the Spirit and imitate our God, or we set off against the Spirit, in which case we are separating ourselves from the life giver in order to go on in-stage life support. On this side of Adam's sin, his exile from Eden, we may eat our bread by the sweat of our brow, but we cannot believe for a moment that this is the whole of this life. There is a king, and there is a kingdom, and real life depends on seeking it first. And so if you would seriously pursue real life, then how do we begin seeking God's kingdom first? How do we begin doing that from a wholehearted devotion? How do we seek a rightly ordered life, a righteous life that is the eternal kind of life enjoyed in the here and now? Well, our confession of mixed allegiances is key, but we have to keep going. As one says, the cure is not simply to know what the problem is. The cure is to know the one we are called to trust. Keep looking at the triune God and how he has revealed himself throughout history. Don't spend time, don't spend your time focusing on your, on your wavering allegiances. What we need is to spend more time focusing on the king himself. Because if you seek the king, who is himself the embodiment of God's kingdom, then you will see both the beauty of the kingdom of God and why we can trust our Father to take care of everything that we need. Look at Jesus who sought God's kingdom and his righteousness above everything else. Look at Jesus, who trusted his Father to provide for his every need for life and ministry, which God did, usually through the women who recognized Jesus as the king for whom they had waited. They clothed Jesus throughout his ministry. They fed him his daily bread so that he had all that he needed. In his life, uh, uh, our king may not have lived like a king, but he had enough to be content. But look at Jesus, too, in the times that he went without. Jesus, who had no place to lay his head. Jesus, who knew hunger. In his temptation in the wilderness, Satan tried to convince him, hey, use your power. You can do that. Satisfy yourself. But Jesus replied, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how he lived. Even, even after those long hours that he spent teaching the crowds without food, without rest, in, in those times, Jesus had enough to be content. 
because he had food that the, that the disciples did not know about, food that sustained him and satisfied them. It, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus sought the kingdom of God and ordered his life accordingly to, to the way that God said. He sought God's righteousness in everything that he did. But in the naked, hungry Jesus stretched out on the cross saying, I thirst. We see how God's kingdom, how seeking God's kingdom above everything else may at times lead us into real physical want. And yet in that same scene, seeing Jesus, we see, we begin to understand just how committed God is to providing for our every need of soul and body. Because in Jesus' death is the payment for our disregard and distrust of our good Father. In his suffering, he is the satisfaction for God's wrath, for our devotion to wealth above him. The gospel tells us that Jesus was treated with contempt because of the scorn that we have shown to God's care for us. It tells us that Jesus was killed as a traitor because of our mixed allegiance. And yet as we come to Jesus in faith and repentance, we can now celebrate how he has rescued us out of that sin and reconciled us to our Father for, for all those ways that we have failed to seek God's kingdom first and order our lives the way that he says is good and right. As we cling to Jesus, to him who was crucified, we can say with confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When you and I begin to focus our attention on Jesus, we can begin to see how seeking the kingdom of God is actually the only way to life. Because in him is life that overcomes hunger and thirst and nakedness. Just think about this. Having passed through such deep want, through death itself, does Jesus now lack? anything? As Isaiah said, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. 
because he, bearing our iniquities, has made many to be accounted righteous. As Jesus hung on the cross, his clothes were stolen and divided beneath him. But now, risen from the dead, he is dressed in immortality. The same immortality with, with which he will soon clothe you. And until that day, we seek God's kingdom first by seeking the king who served God when we didn't. And as we come to him for grace and to learn about living the eternal kind of life today, then, then Jesus will, we can trust that he will reorder our loves and our values to fit God's design for humanity. It, it's going to be slow. You understand, uh, as someone reminds us, the actual building of the kingdom is gradual. It moves forward by small individual acts of obedience. But that gradual growth is so often the way that God works. Mighty acts are not what we wait for every single day. And so we need to take for our model little children with their love and deep dependence toward their parents. But as we do that, as, as we look to Jesus, this means that unlike the rest of the world, we are not going to assume that fear and worry are the staples of human life. Instead, we're going to set out on a path to trust more and worry less. And I see so many of you living this way, doing little acts that quietly say, there is a king. There is a kingdom. But if you need some help, if you need some help to know how to seek the kingdom of God in our everyday lives, it's been suggested that one of the strategies for dealing with worry is to be overtaken by something more important than the object of your worries. Jesus shows us what is more important. He shows us that the way to real life is by giving your own life away. His kingdom is where it is better to give than to receive, to love than to need love. His kingdom is where putting the interest of others ahead of your own is as beautiful as it ought to be normal. And so I would say an extension of this idea is to encourage you to devote yourselves to others. Devote yourselves to the good works that God has prepared for you to do. How might it affect your anxiety if you spend less time thinking about yourself and more time thinking about the needs of others? Another strategy for dealing with anxiety, especially for those who are prone to it, is to memorize scripture so that you can meditate on it in times of need or times of calm. Exodus 16 and God's provision of manna that points us to Jesus, that's a good starting place. This very passage from Matthew 6, Psalm 27. These are all helps for us. These are big helps for warriors. But let me encourage you that after you read or recount the truth about God's care for you, I want you to say something. 
I want you to say, yes, Lord, I believe. Another strategy comes as you remember that you are not the only one who struggles with anxious feelings. Strike up conversations with each other. Pray with each other. You, you might start by talking about money and the ways that you often trust in it. But you have to understand, Jesus is actually talking about a whole world of worries here. And so consider how you can share your struggle and, and hope with others as you seek Jesus together. Finally, one more practical suggestion. Look at your budget. What does your spending say that you love? And what if it's a mistake to think that giving to the work of God's kingdom when you feel like it is the only way to worship authentically? What if your heart's affections would actually follow your giving and be shaped by it? Such, such expressions of trust are going to take practice, you know. Uh, that's important to remember because, it, it, finally, look at verse 34. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is being a realist here. He's telling us that every day is going to have trouble of its own. The, the gospel does not exempt us from the problems that attend this present evil age. You are going to have difficult circumstances tomorrow. But that does not mean that you have to be anxious about them. Because when they come, you can trust your heavenly Father, and you can seek his kingdom even as you face those things. To do so, you're going to have to give him your word, uh, give him, him and his word your full attention. Even though the voices of worry are going to keep saying, the world is threatening, you are alone. But the gospel tells us that the kingdom of God has broken into this world. And in Christ, God is establishing his control in a new way. Now that the king has come, you will never be alone. And he will keep working to reorder our hearts and our minds, restoring what sin has disordered in us. We, we know that he's going to do that because the God who did not let the Israelites' sandals wear out over 40 years of wandering says he himself is going to provide for every need that you have, body and soul. The God who fed his people bread from heaven in the wilderness has sent Jesus, the living bread, to nourish and to strengthen us. And because he himself, by his own blood, has set you free from sin to pursue this kind of eternal life today, that is another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Amen. Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes for the kingdom. Give us eyes to see our King, Jesus, in all his beauty, so that our hearts are drawn away from trusting in anything less than him. Show us where our sin is keeping us from seeing. But please, give us your spirit so that we can witness the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. 
Keep us believing in your care. Keep us trusting you for our needs. You have said, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, and your kingdom we will seek. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.